0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. If you do not have one, as always, there should be a blue one on the end of your pew or, or perhaps maybe a device that you brought with you. Feel free to, to use whatever method you prefer. Uh, as long as your Bible has the book of Romans and as long as the book of Romans has the ninth chapter, you'll be all right. This morning, uh, we have officially reached the one-year mark since we began this study in the book of Romans. Uh, we started this book the first Sunday of last July. So with this being the last Sunday of June, we've now reached a year and have reached here in this ninth chapter a very important, very difficult, very profound teaching. And I'm excited to, to read this and study God's Word with you together this morning. And so as we begin, I want to read, our focus is on verses 6-13 through 13 of Romans 9, but I want to begin reading uh, where we were last week in verses 1-5. through 5. And so we'll read from verse 1 all the way through verse 13 of Romans 9 together. Look with me, hear what Paul writes. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, But it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel or excuse me, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us. Help me. Give strength to my my voice, give strength to my throat. Give strength to Your Word as it goes forth. God, help us Help us to understand. Help us to, to read and to, to have clarity of thought. To be able to process and, and wrestle and grasp this teaching from Your Word. But God, more than that, our, our aim is not knowledge. And our aim is not insight. And our aim is not understanding. Not only these things. But our aim this morning is the same aim as it is every Sunday that we gather. Our aim is worship. And so, Father, through this word, help us to worship. Encourage us, convict us, renew us, refresh us, enliven us, God, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like to to begin this morning with uh, some some honesty and and perhaps some some testimony. You see, when we began this study in Romans a, a year ago, while my focus has always been on the individual text that has been before us every week, I would be lying if I told you that somewhere in the back of my mind, I did not have one eye looking forward to this chapter. As as we've been reading it and studying it, it is not because Romans nine is is the most important chapter of Romans. I think that you could argue very clearly that chapters five through eight are, are much more important from a gospel perspective than Romans nine. But but Romans nine, this this chapter is is special in its subject matter because this subject is both deep and difficult. It is confounding and profound. It is shocking yet supernatural. And there is something both all inspiring and worship inducing and yet pride crushing in the very same breath. You see, growing up, I I grew up in a a Baptist church. And from early on, I I believed and I was taught that uh, that God had saved me and and that he had these these great plans for my life. But ultimately, the the teaching of the church that I was I was raised in ultimately that this was that. God could only do, God could only accomplish His plan in my life if I allowed Him to do it. That I had to be faithful in order for God to be faithful. That I had to be obedient in order for God to work. And while my faithfulness and my obedience are certainly commanded in Scripture, let me start right off the bat this morning by correcting this teaching that I grew up with. Especially if you are here this morning and that's something that you hold to. God is not limited by me or by you or by any other human being. He does not require your obedience or your faithfulness to be faithful. Because God is and always has been and always will be faithful to himself. And where we are faithless, we can rest assured he is and will remain faithful. Faithful. You see, His plans, both His global worldwide plans, as well as His plans for us as His children, as His people, they are not hindered by our choices. And the reason this is so important, the reason this is so foundational to our understanding, this next section of Romans, is because when I believe that God's plans can be thwarted, can be twisted, can be stopped or hindered by me, Who's really God in this relationship? Who really has control over things? If I have the power to stop him. If my sin can somehow put God in a box. And tie his hands behind his back. Then he ceases to be God in that very moment. And I become the ruler of my life and of my kingdom. With God, nothing more than a helper, as long as I allow him to do it. That's a very small view of God. And yet it's a view of God that I unknowingly held for so many years until I got to college. And I remember my my roommate, my freshman year. He was was a brother, and in so many ways, ways that I imagine that even this morning, he still has... No idea how much he helped me in this journey and in this walk. You see, he had this this way of just asking questions. Questions that were simple and questions that I should have been able to answer very simply and quickly. And yet I just couldn't answer. Questions like, did God save you by his grace or did you make the right choice? Does God need you to accomplish his divine plans? Is the reason that so many are lost because they have made bad choices or is it because in their sin they are blind to the truth? And if they're blind, who or what cures that blindness? Can they open their own eyes? And when does that cure for blindness happen? You see, it was through these, these late night conversations with Ryan that, that God used him to point me to Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. Chapters that, quite honestly, I don't know that I had ever read before them. And in these, over the next two, three years, I can tell you that very little else occupied my Bible study than these three chapters. I got stuck here. And it's a great place to get stuck. Don't don't hear me wrong, but I got stuck in Romans nine. I got stuck in these verses that we are focusing on this morning. These uh, my feet could not leave this chapter. And so these chapters were and they still are foundational to why I believe what I do about scripture and about God and about how God works and accomplishes his plans. Both in my life and around the world. And I'm very excited to walk through them with you this morning and over the next several weeks. But all that being said, let me offer a, a caveat, an escape, if you will. I don't anticipate or expect or I I don't expect you, if you are here this morning and and these things that we're talking about are brand new and have never been taught to you or, or given to you. If you walk away here this morning with understanding that you had not had before, we will praise God together and give him the credit and glory for it because it is not something that I can do. I can't give you understanding. And while my, my my purpose and my goal this morning is to walk us through this passage, and I want you to see it, and I want you to understand it, and I want you to embrace it and see the truth of God's word this morning. The ultimate aim and the ultimate goal of our time together here in this chapter is not for me to convince you of something. But my goal is to proclaim God's word to you in such a way that it will move you to worship the author and the, the inspirer of these words. Because He's worthy of it. Because you see, this chapter, these words are full of His grace. And if we are gathered here together as His people, as children, as recipients of this grace, and we cannot worship Him because of that grace, then we've missed it. And so this morning, church, I want to walk through these these eight verses. Slowly, carefully, patiently. But I want you to understand my goal is not to convince you. My goal is to lead you in worship, to show you the beautiful ways that God's grace works and moves even beyond our understanding. And that at the end of today, we will praise him for his marvelous and amazing grace. So all that being said, let us jump into some deep waters together. I want to maybe remind you of kind of where Paul is in his letter and, and the, a crisis that has come up at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. And we looked at this a little bit last week, but but the issue that Paul is getting at, in chapter chapter 8 ends with this very great celebration of God's love for His people, for us, for Christians, that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from this love, that we are held in it forever. But almost... So quickly that you can't catch it, Paul moves from this celebration to this lamentation that while nothing can separate us from the love of God, that this is a promise we can hold on to. What does it mean for Israel and especially for those in Israel who have rejected Jesus? And so Paul comes to this crisis because here he is, a a, a Jew, a fellow Israelite, and so many of his brothers and sisters that the promises of the Old Testament were given to where God said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And yet now these people that supposedly were a part of this everlasting covenant with God now stand accursed and cut off from God. And so Paul is in this crisis that God made promises to Israel in the Old Testament that they were his chosen people. And then nothing they did, nothing would ever change that. But now they stand accursed. And the reason this crisis is so important, not just for Israel, but also for us, is because if the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament are rendered null and void, What's to stop God from doing the same thing with the promises He's made us? What's to stop Romans 8, this assurance of, of, of God's love, this assurance of salvation, this assurance of life and adoption and help and hope and all of the things we, we saw in these, what's to stop all of chapter 8 from just disappearing, falling like sand between our fingers? Because if God wasn't faithful, if God's word failed in the Old Testament, then what's to keep it from failing in the new? And so that's the that's the crisis that Paul is dealing with in Romans nine. That's the problem. And so the big question that Paul is asking regarding Israel, regarding these Old Testament promises is, has the word of God failed? And he gives this very emphatic answer in verse 6. Verse 6 being the thesis of the entire chapter, no. The word of God has not failed. And Paul sort of rearranges, it's a very poor sentence structurally and grammatically because Paul puts the no at the very first word in the Greek. And he does it so that even though you read it and literal translation it wouldn't make sense, but he does it so that you would understand that he puts no in all all caps, bold print, underlined, circled around it, making sure that you and I understand the word of God has not failed. But why? How can Paul say it hasn't failed if Israel stands accursed? And so he explains, not all Israel is Israel. He says it's simple just because someone who who physically belongs to the nation of Israel does not mean that they spiritually belong to the true Israel, the people for whom the Old Testament promises were given. Or to put it another way, as Paul does, being Abraham's physical children, physical descendants does not mean they belong to the people of God. And it feels like, uh, if you're if, if we're honest, if I'm honest, it feels like Paul's being like a bad algebra student here. He's trying to figure out the equation and move things around. And he gets to the point where here's this number that just doesn't make any sense. So what does he do with it? Uh, he erases it and throws it out the window. Or as other pastors have put it, he's like a bad magician. Who just makes things disappear whenever they undercut his belief. And while none of that is true, and I'll I'll show you why in just a moment, let me pause here to to encourage you in this. Don't read your Bible like bad magicians. Statement that I never thought I'd make when I was a seminary student. But don't read your Bible like bad magicians. It it amazes me how, how we can so easily hold up our faith in God's word and we believe fully and almost boastfully, I believe God's word is true at least until we come to a difficult passage that confronts us and forces us to change some of the foundational things we believe. And then instead of actually changing us, we change it. And we say, well, that doesn't fit with what I believe, so disappear. Don't do that. Because you can't just make verses disappear when you disagree with them. So for Paul, the crisis that Israel cut off, this crisis is answered by this notion that not all Israel is truly Israel. But Paul knows that he can't just say things, and so he has to prove what he says. And so he turns to the Old Testament to show this, the validity of the statement. But more than that, that this has always been true. This is not a new truth. This has always been the case. Israel has not always been all of Israel. That as God was creating and saving and separating Israel for himself throughout the Old Testament, as he was making these covenant promises to them, that he was only speaking and referring to a portion, to a remnant within the nation of Israel. And Paul provides two Old Testament proofs, two examples for us to consider his statement. And so the first proof is Isaac and Ishmael. And you may remember the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah in, in the book of Genesis. Abraham was, was the forefather of Israel. He was promised a, a child in his old age. But the child doesn't come for years. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah become concerned that maybe maybe this won't happen. And so maybe, maybe as I grew up being taught, maybe in order for God's plans to happen, we have to do it. And so Sarah and Abraham and Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, Hatch a plan. The child will come through Hagar and not Sarah. So Abraham sleeps with his wife's handmaiden. And they have a son, Ishmael. And as you read through Genesis, maybe especially for the first time, if you've never read it, you might get to this point in the story and go, well, it's probably not how God wanted this to happen. But you know what? Abraham got it. Got it. He got the son that he, he was promised. And so let's just move on. And the funny thing is that even Abraham thinks that you can read. I think it's in, in Genesis 17 where Abraham begs God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, that you would accept Ishmael because I don't have anybody else. This is Abraham saying to God, you promised me a son, God. I have a son. So let's just move on. What's next? And God graciously says to Abraham, "No, that's not the son that I promised to give you. Ishmael's not the one. For this is what the promise said. Paul writes it about this time next year. I will return, and Sarah, not Hagar, Sarah, will have a son. And you see, here's where Paul's argument for for this Israel within Israel comes comes out. What was the difference between Isaac and Ishmael? In their relationship to Abraham. Both were his sons. Both carried his DNA in their bones. In their blood. Both could very truthfully claim. I am a child of Abraham. And yet. Only one of them was the promised child. And see, that the thing that Israel claims throughout generation after generation was Israel claimed we are children of Abraham. We are descendants of Abraham. The very same thing that Ishmael could have and likely did claim. I am a son of Abraham. And yet we go back here to Romans 9 and to verse 7. And Paul says, not all are children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring. But the promise says it was through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means that it is not the children of the flesh, Paul writes, who are the children of God, but it is the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. I mean, Do you, do you see this here? Isaac and Ishmael were both children of Abraham, but only one of them was the child of promise. Only one belonged to the people of God so what Paul is saying here is, as N.T. Wright put it, is that what matters most is grace, not race. God chose Isaac to be the child of promise. Isaac is the one through whom the promise will be fulfilled. And even though Ishmael was as much an offspring of Abraham, he wasn't the offspring that God promised. Isaac was the child of promise. Ishmael was not. And I think we could even take this a step further by by saying that Ishmael was the product of man's effort. Where Isaac was the the product of God's miraculous and supernatural work. And that's why Isaac was the child of promise. Ishmael wasn't. Because man can never do what only God can do. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children because Sarah was barren. And I believe at the time that Isaac was born, if I remember rightly, Sarah was 90 years old. I think we have a handful of of ladies here this morning that are at 90, above 90, approaching 90. Any of you want a newborn to take home with you today? (laughs) And yet it is in this old age that God promised to give them a son. But in order for that son to be born, God had to work. He had to perform a miracle. He had to bring life where no life existed To a womb that could not support life. And God did just that. That's why Sarah's name is so crucial to this promise that Paul brings out here. It was Sarah who was going to have a son. Not Hagar. Not anyone else. Because if Sarah was going to have a child, then the only way that Sarah gets to have a child is if God does it. And this child, this birth, Isaac, is the result of God's special, miraculous, sovereign work. And nothing else. And is this not what we read in John chapter 1 about how the children of God come to be? To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but who are born of God. Ishmael was born of the will of man. Ishmael was born of the will of the flesh. Ishmael was born of blood. Isaac was born of God. And Isaac is the child of promise. You see, what matters is God showing grace to Abraham and Sarah, working in ways beyond their feeble strength, doing what only God could do to bring about the child that only God promised. Ishmael may have belonged to Abraham according to the flesh, but the promise was always meant For Isaac. And so Paul is using this example of Isaac and Ishmael to say this. All of my Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ. They may belong to the family line of Abraham. But they are more like Ishmael than they are of Isaac. They carry his blood. They carry his DNA. But they are not the children of promise. Because they have rejected Christ. They are no more the children of promise than Ishmael was. So that's proof number one. The second proof that Paul uses to, to further this, because is it, Jacob and Esau. And it, it would be at this point that you would almost raise up, and maybe some of you are thinking this, that an argument could be raised against what Paul's saying. I hear you, Paul. But the reasons that Ishmael was not chosen, there are plenty. I mean, he was the product of an adulterous relationship. His mother was an Egyptian a handmaiden. When he grew up, he mocked Isaac. He was a wicked and cruel little boy. And so you could pick all of these things and say God would have seen and known all of this about Ishmael long before and that's why he didn't choose Ishmael. That's why he chose Isaac because Ishmael was dirty and ugly and not worthy of it. Before that argument can really even be given any time to take root, Paul answers it by simply just moving down one more generation in this family line. To prove that Ishmael's sin or his unworthiness had nothing to do with God choosing Isaac over him. But that it was all about God's sovereign election. That God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And that's all there is to it. Paul moves. he, he, He is doing this to show us that God chooses whom he chooses because that's whom he chooses. And to prove that, Paul looks at Jacob and Esau. Another quick reminder of the story of Genesis with this family. Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac grows up, marries Rebecca. Rebecca is is barren, much like Sarah, for for a long time. Not as long as Sarah, but eventually God opens her her womb and gives life where there once was none, and Rebecca conceives and has twins, two boys, Jacob and Esau. But obviously, in the days before ultrasounds and the days before people really knew what was happening down there. That Rebecca, in her days of pregnancy, feels in her body the two brothers fighting, as only twin brothers can do, I suppose. And as any pregnant woman would be, she feels this movement, she feels this tossing about in her womb, and she's concerned over the health of her children. And so she prays and says, God, what's happening? Is my my child okay? I've been barren for so long. I've wanted a child and now I have one. And now I'm concerned that something's wrong. And God graciously speaks to her, providing comfort and grace. He speaks and says, there are two nations inside of you, Rebecca. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And so Paul uses Jacob and Esau to continue and strengthen his argument for God's election. You see, you could argue against the merit of Ishmael. You could point to the the fact that he had a a, a cruel childhood of mocking Isaac and being a a mean older brother. You could point to his his mother, the, the adulterous relationship, that he was a product of adultery. That he was this wicked little boy who was the product of wickedness and say, that's why. That's why God didn't choose him. But you can't argue on the basis of merit between Jacob and Esau. If you make the argument between Isaac and Ishmael, fine. You can't do that with these two twin boys. They had the same mom and dad. They shared a womb. They were born on the same day. And yet, before they were born, as Paul points out, before they had done anything either good or bad... God chose Jacob and not Esau. You see, it's it's important that we don't try to squirm our way out of these verses by using some argument of foresight either. Well, God knew that Esau would grow up and become evil and he knew that Jacob would grow up and he would become good and righteous. That's not what's at play here. God chose Jacob, not because he was good or evil, not because he would do good or evil, not because he was the firstborn because Jacob wasn't. Not because he was better than Esau in any way, shape, or form. God chose Jacob because God chose Jacob. And you see, and this is where the doctrine of election makes us so uncomfortable. Because if God just chooses people, without basing it on anything, that anything that I can do, or have done, or will do, then what hope do I have to become one of those chosen How can I possibly desire and become someone that God chooses if it's solely based on whomever he chooses? How can I guarantee that God chooses me? And then we sort of add fuel to that fire when we get to verse 13 where Paul quotes Malachi and he says, where God speaking through the prophet Malachi says, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated And we read this and we think, but why? That's not fair. And you're right. It isn't fair. But it's grace. And I think we need to be very careful when we make claims about wanting God to be fair. Don't you? Because what would be fair... Would be God choosing neither Jacob nor Esau. Not Isaac or Ishmael, not Abraham, not you and not me. What would be fair is God not saving anyone, but damning everyone for their sin. That would be fair. That would be just. That would be worthy. Because that's what we deserve. And that's what Jacob deserved, and that's what Esau deserved, and that's what Isaac deserved, and that's what Ishmael deserved. That's what Abraham deserved. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. That would be fair. Do we really want God to be fair in this? Or do we desperately need him to be gracious like this? You see, I realize the doctrine of election is difficult to grasp. But I I genuinely believe that this is a doctrine that we must grasp. Because it is not a small matter. Because I I truly believe that the deeper you come to understand this doctrine of election, that God chooses whom he saves, and he saves those he chooses. And the greater your understanding of grace will become. And to help you understand this, this difficult doctrine, you need to see why election is not an optional thing. It's not a take it or leave it doctrine. Because Paul highlights why God chose Jacob and Isaac and why his election is so central. Look at, here's the key verse. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, and then he gives us this little almost per- parentheses. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And you see, there's a couple of questions that come to mind when we're discussing God's election. Why does God work like this? Why does he choose who he saves? Why doesn't he let us choose? Isn't that what free will is? And I think we could get lost on an endless rabbit trail discussing free will. Let me, let me just say this. And then I'll leave it to your Bible study this week to dive deeper into it. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, the will of man has stopped being free. When we say free will, what we mean is the ability to make choices, the the ability to do things without any sort of bias, prejudice, any influence changing my decision. That's what we mean when we say free will. Sinner, you don't have free will because you're a sinner. And every choice and every decision and every inclination and every desire of your heart is tainted and twisted and perverted and corrupted by sin dwelling within you. You stopped being free the moment you took your first breath because sin dwells within you. You see, we as humans... We are not sovereign, self-determining, autonomous beings. Only God is that. He alone has free will. Our wills are not free because they are enslaved by sin. But follow me back here to this Old Testament narrative that Paul has zeroed in on. Track it down this line. Because Paul talks about God's purpose here in verses 11 and 12. That the reason he does this, the reason he elects is so that his purpose might continue. You see, God elected in this way. God worked in this way to fulfill his purpose. And this purpose ultimately is and was Christ. God called Abraham so that he could create a family line through which the son of God could enter the world and rescue the broken world. And then to send his son back to redeem his creation at the end of days. That's the purpose of God in all of this. And In order for this purpose to be accomplished, God had to elect. Because this purpose fails if God does not elect. If God does not supernaturally intervene to bring Isaac into being, then Sarah remains barren and Ishmael is the son of Abraham. Which means no Israel and which means no Christ. No salvation, no redemption, no nothing. God's purpose fails before it ever gets started. If God does not choose Jacob, Jacob remains what he is when he is born. Do you remember the reason they named him Jacob in the first place? When he was born, he was the second twin. He was born. He came out of his mother's womb, clutching the heel of Esau, which they saw as a sign of who Jacob would be. And they called him Jacob, which means he cheats the trickster, the deceiver, the con man. He's a cheat and you can read the story of Jacob's life and you see that's not just a a wives tale that they named him. He actually is a cheat. But God didn't rest his entire salvation purposes for all eternity on the ability of a con man to choose the right thing. No, God chose Jacob knowing who he'd be, knowing his wickedness, knowing his brokenness. God chose a cheat to accomplish God's purposes because God could transform a cheater. Which meant that God not only elected Jacob, but he transformed Jacob because he elected Jacob. That's what election does. It's God choosing his people for himself and then transforming them so that they are worthy of this calling. God elects to fulfill his purpose. Not on the basis of works. Not because Isaac and Jacob would choose or do what was right. But because of him who calls. That's election. That's, that's what we mean when we say God elects. It's that the purposes of God rest on God and not you and not me. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me after. Just do you feel that? That if God had not chosen you, believer, you never would have chosen him. And that if he had not chosen you before you were born, before the sinfulness of your heart could really manifest, before the brokenness of your life could really come out, that God surely wouldn't have chosen you after you were born. So let me me land the plane here. Just one final encouragement for you and why the doctrine of election changes you and it changes the way that you view you. Because when, it's, when it comes to salvation, it is so easy, it is so tempting for us to think that God saves me by grace and. And there's so many add-ons that we could just plug in there. That God saves me by grace and my accepting Jesus into my heart. That God saves me by grace and my obedience. That God saves me by grace and my prayers. That God saves me by grace and what God knew that I would become. Do you, do you see how foolish and dangerous this mindset is? I mean, these are statements that are dripping, oozing with pride. What if, what if I stood here and I said to you, as a believer, God saved me. He was gracious and He saved me, but He saved me because He knew that I would be a preacher one day. That I would be a pastor one day. And that God was going to use me because God needed me. And so He saved me because He knew what I would become. If I ever stand up here and tell that to you, then you as a church have every right and responsibility to look at me and say you have disqualified yourself from ministry. Step down. Because you have taken the gospel and you've made it about you. God saved me by His grace. Period. And if we believe that God saves by his grace, then that means that I am not only unworthy of it, but that there is nothing I can do or believe or say that will cause any of that grace to come to me. When we say that we are saved by grace, we are saying that God has to choose to show us grace. And he doesn't show grace to everyone. He didn't show grace to Ishmael, not saving grace. He didn't show grace to Esau, not saving grace. But praise him because he showed grace to me and he showed grace to you. And I don't always understand why he chose me and not them. I don't understand why he he chose to save me from my sin, but leave others in theirs. And I don't have to understand that. It's not my job to know that. It's not my job to understand why he chooses whom he chooses. But I am blown away. That's why chapter 9 in in college was such such a foundational chapter to me. Because it blew me away. That God chose me. That he chose to show grace to me. Christian, you are not saved because you made the right choice and you prayed the right prayer and you walked the right aisle. You are not saved because you try really hard to obey. You are not saved because you chose Jesus. You are saved because Jesus chose you. And when you realize this, when this truth becomes so deeply planted within your soul... Any and every ounce of pride is flattened because you didn't do anything. You couldn't do anything, but God chose you because God is gracious and nothing more. Sinclair Ferguson said the minute, the minute that we add the smallest iota of anything that we could bring or do to our salvation It is in that same moment that we have disgraced grace. If you add anything to grace, it ceases to be grace. And I'm sure there's still questions about this. Such as, why does God find fault? How does He hold us responsible for our choices if it's really up to His choice? Why did God hate Esau if He just never chose him? And how does God punish people if... The only fault was not being chosen by God. And we'll we'll get there. To those questions, I'll I'll say two things quickly. First, come back next week because we're going to get to this. But I don't want to leave you there this week struggling. And so second, the sovereign election of God does not negate the willful rebellion of man. You and every other human being to ever walk the planet is responsible for the choices and the decisions and the sins that we have done. No one will ever stand at the gates of hell and say, I don't deserve this. But the purpose of this morning is not to convince you of election, it's not to convince you of this doctrine, not, not by itself. More than that, what I what I believe what I believe the doctrine of election is that it, it does is it moves us to worship, to stand in awe of the fact that I deserve judgment. And yet, by His grace, He chose to save me. Rather than condemn me. And it's not that He saw something in me, or that He thought that I had potential, or that He knew that I would have faith. But God chose me in all of my failures, in all of my brokenness, in all of my sin. God chose me despite me. All because of Him, and all because of grace. Grace. I named this sermon, and you see it in your bulletin, Why God's Word Never Fails. Let's so all end by answering that question. Why does God's Word never fail? Because it depends on God's grace and not on anything else. Pray with me. Father, that your grace would move us. That it would drop our jaws and buckle our knees. That we would be amazed. By the fact that it is not because we chose you. It is not because we believed you. It is not because we have faith. It is not because we've done what is right. It is not because of our potential. It is not because of what we could be. But that we are yours because you chose to make us yours. That we belong to you because you adopted us. That we love you because you first loved us. May this grace awaken us. May it move us. May it shake us. Shake us to our very core by your grace it's in Christ's name we pray